I'd like to describe a situation in the beginning of the sermon. I'd like you to think about it, how you would react if this situation uh, confronted you. If a stranger were to walk into services and started looking around, and if you happened to be in the back corner or wherever it was that they came in, and they asked the question, what, what, what's going on here? Who are these people? Why are you here? You would have an opportunity. You would have an opportunity to react. How would you react? You could react in a number of different ways. You could react kind of defensively and a bit, uh, a bit aloof, maybe even being a little bit evasive. You could say, well, 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 well this is a private meeting. Uh, uh, can I help you find the door? You could be a bit more informative. You could say, well, this is a church meeting, and this is a worship service, and maybe even smile. You could be even a bit more positive. You could say, we are members of the living church of God, and we are observing the Sabbath. The next question would be, well, I thought only Jews kept the Sabbath. (laughs) Uh, What are you actually doing here? Who are you? Uh, Where do you come from? Again, you have an opportunity to react. You could say, we are not Jewish, we are Christians. We are following the teachings of Jesus Christ and the apostles. Jesus kept the Sabbath. The apostles kept the Sabbath. Our roots actually go back to apostolic Christianity, the Christianity of Jesus Christ and the apostles. You'd probably surprise the person. And then you would have another opportunity. You could smile and say, would you like to join us? Or you could say, again, this is a private meeting. Uh, Can I help you find your way out? Or you could react. Now, you probably wouldn't say this, but some people may think this. We are apostolic Christians in this room, and it's obvious you don't belong here. Because, you know, your hair is too long or too short. Your skirt's too long or too short or too tight. Uh, You know, you're chewing gum. You shouldn't do that in here. Uh, Those earrings that go the whole way around your ear obviously tell us that you don't belong here. Uh, You know, you could keep on going. You know, the, uh, the stud in your tongue when you start singing, is actually going to make a very annoying noise when it bangs against your your dentures. (laughs) You know, the blue jeans, the baseball cap, the long hair, uh, the flip-flops, the sunglasses, obviously tell us that you don't belong here. You must have come into the wrong place. Uh, You know, and you could go on thinking, you know, you're really a mess. (laughs) You need to go home and repent in sackcloth and ashes for at least 30 days. (laughs) And when you're done with your period of penance, then you could probably tune into our website and listen to at least two or three sermons a week, read the booklets, uh, take the Bible correspondence course. This may take you about a year to get through. Now, if you're still interested, you can call our headquarters, and in two or three months, we might get back to you. Uh, And if a minister comes by, uh, you can ask him if you can attend church. 
Now, he might want to uh, do an in-depth spiritual analysis of your mental, physical, and spiritual condition. <clears throat> you know, I'm exaggerating here to make a point. <laughs> uh, he also might request several letters of recommendation before he invites you to church from your high school principal, your neighbor, uh, uh, your doctor, and maybe your employer. When you come to church, you may have to go through a short security check. The deacon probably will give you an eye test. He will look into your eyes and measure your immediate spiritual condition. If you get by (laughs) the deacon at the door, uh, then you would be welcome to participate in apostolic Christianity. Again, I've exaggerated to make the point. The point is, many people have different ideas about apostolic Christianity. To ask another question, which of the above responses that we discussed? Smiling at the person, say, would you like to join us? Or kind of saying, well, this is a private meeting, Uh, there's the door. Or we're apostolic Christians and you don't belong here. Which of the above responses do you think Jesus Christ and the apostles would recommend that we follow? I want to talk about apostolic Christianity today. From a historical perspective, I want to ask what can we learn about apostolic Christianity when we look back over history and when we study the New Testament? What can we learn? What lessons are applicable and informative to us today when we talk about apostolic Christianity? I've entitled the sermon, Historical Perspectives on Apostolic Christianity. Historical Perspectives on Apostolic Christianity. If you want a subtitle, the subtitle would be, Is Apostolic Christianity for You? Is apostolic Christianity for you? The first thing I'd like to talk about has to do with our roots as a religious organization. Where do we come from? What are we part of? Do we understand what we are part of as we sit in this room? When a person asks you, what religion are you? What church do you go to? What do you believe? This is what they're asking. What are your roots? Where do you come from? Why do you believe what you believe? As I mentioned in the situation at the beginning, we are Christians. We are Christians. We follow the teachings of Jesus Christ. You know, if we respond, well, we we used to be part of the Worldwide Church of God, we, we follow the teachings of Herbert Armstrong. We're not taking things back to our roots. We're only giving them a snapshot of what's happened in the last 40 or 50 years. We are Christians and we follow the teachings of Jesus Christ. Let's notice a couple of scriptures quickly. In Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus Christ was calling his disciples, notice what he said to them. In Matthew chapter 4, Matthew 
Beginning in verse 18, it says, Now Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. He said to them, Follow me. Follow me. Follow my example. Follow my teachings. That's what a disciple does. They follow the teachings of their teacher. They spread the teachings of their teacher. We have been called to become disciples of Jesus Christ as Christians. In uh, John chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus defines basically what a disciple is. We sing about this in one of the songs that we sing during services. John chapter 8 and verse 31. Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, if you follow my teachings, if you do what I have instructed you to do, you are indeed my disciples. Now, Mr. Armstrong followed the teachings of Jesus Christ. And when you study the Bible, and you compare that with what the church published during the time Mr. Armstrong was leading the church, it becomes pretty obvious that he was following the teachings of Jesus Christ. He was not an Armstrongite. He was a Christian because he followed the teachings of Jesus Christ. Notice in Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. And just notice the context here. Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 25. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus, kind of up in the northeastern end of the Mediterranean. Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, again up in that same area. So it, and so it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. What did they teach? They taught the teachings of Jesus Christ. They were teaching about apostolic Christianity for a whole year. And people in that region obviously became familiar with what was happening. And the disciples were called not Paulites, not Barnabases, but they were called Christians in Antioch because they were following the teachings of Jesus Christ. People became known as Christians because they were doing certain things, believing certain things, and following a specific way of life. In Acts chapter 26, Paul was being brought before Roman authorities. It's very interesting how Paul reacted. He didn't hide anything. He didn't apologize for anything. In verse 1 of chapter 26, comes before King Agrippa, and Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. Notice he wasn't complaining because he'd been arrested. He says, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things which I am accused of by the Jews, especially because you are an expert in the customs and questions which have to do with the Jews, therefore I beg you to hear me patiently. And Paul went through a very logical, very clear explanation of his beliefs and the charges against him to show basically 
they're groundless. They're groundless. And Paul very confidently explained what he believed. Down in verse 24, now he thus made his defense. The word here is probably apologia, which means to give an answer or to provide a defense, not to give an apology, but to give a very powerful explanation of who he was, what he believed, and so on. Now as he made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're beside yourself. Much learning has made you mad. But Paul answered. He said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but I speak the words of truth and reason. My beliefs are not off the wall. They're based on solid facts. They're based on real things. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things. You know I'm speaking the truth. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention. Since this thing, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the miracles and everything else, was not done in a corner. These things were done in the public sphere. People saw these things. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. You understand. You know what's right. You know what's true. You know what the scriptures say. Then King Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. Or as other translations say, you think you can persuade me in this short discussion to be a Christian? But Paul didn't hesitate. He let go with both barrels. So this is what I believe. This is what it's based upon. He very powerfully defended his beliefs. He made no excuses for what he believed. He was a Christian. He wasn't ashamed for anything that he believed. What I want to make clear in the sermon today is we are Christians. We follow the teachings of Jesus Christ. We do follow Mr. Armstrong as he followed Jesus Christ. And we don't make any bones about that. But we don't follow people when they go off in a different direction. Our roots go back to Jesus Christ and the apostles and the early church. That's where they go. When you read the Bible and compare it with what we teach and believe today, you find they fit together like a hand in a glove. We're not making these things up. What were the beliefs and the teachings of the early apostolic church? What did they believe? What do you believe? Can you explain clearly and logically the teachings of the early apostolic church? We should be able to do these things. Let me just run through several. The early apostolic church kept the Sabbath because Jesus Christ kept the Sabbath. The apostles kept the Sabbath. These are memory scriptures that you need to have written in your notes or actually burned into your brain. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. Luke is describing the, uh, the habits and the patterns and the behavior of Jesus Christ. What he did, how he functioned, the days that he observed. It says he came to Nazareth, Luke 4.16, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, Luke uses this phrase here and in Acts 17.2 and no place else in the Bible. Luke is delivering a message. Jesus Christ kept the Sabbath as his custom was. He kept it because that was one of the commandments. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. 
It wasn't changed. Christ never changed it. The apostles never changed it. As his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. Christ kept the Sabbath. Go to Acts 17.2 quickly. We should be able to walk people through these things and explain this is why we do these things. Mr. Armstrong didn't make this up. This is what we find in the Bible. Verse 2 of Acts 17, Paul then, as his custom was, went into them. He had just come to Thessalonica. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures three Sabbaths in a row. In Thessalonica, verse, uh, chapter 18, verse 1, after these things Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. Verse 4, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, persuaded both Jews and Greeks. So it's just one Sabbath after another. Go back to Acts 13, beginning in verse 13. Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphros, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the Law and the Prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, and do you guys have anything to say? And then Paul got up and began speaking to them on the Sabbath. He talked about their history and about their purpose and so on. You get down to verse 42. Then, and when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. They didn't say, well, you know, we'll be around tomorrow because we have a sun-worshiping day and we can stay around then and listen to you. He said, no, come back next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. Now, they didn't have a bunch of deacons at the door. Uh, your hair's not long enough or it's too short or whatever. Uh, you know, you can't come in here today. The whole city came to hear the truth of God. Again, I'm not watering down principles. So don't take the wrong message. But they were preaching the gospel. They weren't keeping people away because they didn't quite measure up to some people's standards. You know, generally, when a person is being called, they will begin to adopt the standards that we teach. They will read in the scriptures about moderate dress, uh, about hair lengths, and so on. They'll see those things. But we don't have to have people at the door you know, with a checklist. <laughs> don't quite make it. Uh, come back next week. Try it again. The whole city came to hear the truth of God. And they were excited about those things. You know, part of our challenge as parents is to make the Sabbath a joy for our children so that they look forward to keeping the Sabbath. Notice in Isaiah 58. And this was the principle that we tried to use. Because as parents, part of our challenge as Christians, is to convey a set of values to our children so that they're excited about these things and not turned off by the truth of God. Isaiah 58, verse 13 and 14 says, If you turn your foot from the Sabbath, 
Take your foot off of my Sabbath. Don't be doing your thing on my holy day. And if you call the Sabbath a delight, again, we've got some people today that want to put a whole lot of burdens and restrictions on people. You can't do this, can't do that. Don't breathe too much. Don't walk too far. Again, if you do, you're going to get sore feet and all these other things. You'll learn lessons that way. But if you call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord, honorable, and shall honor him, not doing your thing, not finding your pleasure. You know, some people I was talking to one time and said, well, you know, if you, if you have a, a church luncheon someplace uh, between services on the holy day, you're doing your pleasure. Come on, you only see each other once a week. In some cases, people in outlying areas once a month. And if you have a dinner together, a lunch together, where you can rejoice and talk and socialize and fellowship. Uh, you know, Christ had some things to say about people who put a bunch of burdens on people. Again, I'm not talking about taking liberties. I'm talking about having a very balanced perspective on God's laws. Not finding your pleasure, not speaking your own words, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord. You know, little kids should be able to look at God and be very thankful. God should be real to them. You know, we used to tell our boys as they were growing up how God created all the animals. And I remember another couple we were spending some time with, they were doing the same thing. And I think they told their little girls, they said, we're going to go to the zoo. The little girl says, is God going to be there? Because <laughs> he made the animals. <clears throat> but, you know, if God is real to our children, we explain God is like a father. Again, they will look at God as you are. If you're overburdened and overbearing as a father, then that's going to be their perspective of God. But if you're loving and patient and, and you enjoy being around them, you're concerned for them, that's how they're going to view God. You should delight yourself in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride upon the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. God says, if you obey, you are going to be blessed. You're going to be blessed incredibly. And this is the lesson that we need to pass on to our, our children. It's a lesson that we need to pass on to new people learning about the Sabbath. But the early Christians kept the Sabbath. Paul kept the Sabbath. Peter kept the Sabbath. Christ kept the Sabbath. The early church kept the Sabbath. That's why we keep it today. Second point. Jesus Christ and the apostles kept the holy days. You can go back to Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 41. Jesus went up to Jerusalem with his parents every year at the Passover. He was taught as a child about the holy days. And if we take the time to make the holy days special for our children, one of the things, again, we did with the boys growing up uh, was to sit down and ask them, usually through the summer, where would you like to go for the feast this year? Would you like to go here? Would you like to go there? Where would you like to stay at the feast? Uh, and then about halfway through the feast, if we stayed at a nice place, I'd say, let's go home. You know, we've got to get back to school. You know, you guys are getting behind. We, we, we better go home. I said, no, Dad, we can't do that. We've got to stay. But I just tried to help them appreciate what was happening in their life and the opportunities that they were having. But Jesus Christ kept the holy days in Luke 22, verses 15 and 16. This was 
where he was keeping the Passover with his disciples the night before he was crucified. And notice his approach. He wasn't down in the mouth, you know, I'm not going to see you guys forever, you know, it's going to be terrible. You know, I'm going to get killed tomorrow and, you know, please pray for me. Notice what he said. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I have been looking forward to this. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. We will not have this experience until we're together again in the kingdom of God. He was positively oriented towards the holy days. John chapter 7, Christ told his, his, his brothers, he said, you go up to the feast. And he went up later. And then he spoke at the feast on the last day of the feast. Very powerfully. Acts 18, verse 21, Paul makes the comment. He says, I've got to hurry to be at Jerusalem to keep this feast. I've got to be there. I've got to stay on schedule to keep the feast. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 8, Paul tells the church at Corinth, basically a Gentile church. He says, let us keep the feast. The whole context of 1 Corinthians 5 is in the context of the Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread. And if people have been told recently in some places, uh, 1 Corinthians 5 is not about the Days of Unleavened Bread. And yet Paul talks about you're puffed up. Has no real context unless he's talking about uh, leavening. He says, you know, you're, you're as you are unleavened. Uh, well, they, were, they weren't unleavened spiritually, but they obviously were unleavened physically because Paul said it that way. But he tells those people, let us keep the feast, a New Testament command to keep these days. What about the preaching of the gospel? What was the gospel that Jesus Christ preached? Again, another memory scripture, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. This was the gospel that Jesus Christ preached. This was the gospel of apostolic Christianity. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. About the coming reign of Jesus Christ on this earth and the reign of the saints with Jesus Christ for a thousand years. That was the gospel that Christ was preaching and saying to them, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. I am here as a representative of that kingdom. Repent. Change your perspectives and believe the gospel. That is what Jesus Christ preached. What about the apostles? Look very quickly at Acts chapter 8. You know, there's so many. I was listening to the radio coming back from uh, up in Carolina and Tennessee last weekend and listening to a number of radio broadcasts, religious broadcasts, and you know, their gospel is about giving your heart to the Lord. Do you love Jesus and all those things? So they said nothing about the coming kingdom of God. And yet that's what Jesus Christ and the apostles were preaching about. Acts chapter 8, Philip goes down to Samaria. Verse 12, But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't just about his name. It was about his teachings, about his way of life. The whole ball of wax. That's what Philip was preaching about. 
in Acts chapter 28. What was Paul preaching about at the end of his ministry? And this is why we preach about these things today. Verse 23, So when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God. That's what Paul was preaching about. Persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning until evening. So he was talking about Jesus Christ being the Messiah, the one who was prophesied to come. He was talking about the coming kingdom of God and that the saints could reign with Jesus Christ during that period of time. Verse 30, Then Paul went two whole years, dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence and no one forbidding him. Now, people have been told in recent years that uh, Mr. Armstrong got off on a wrong track. He was preaching a wrong gospel. He was mistaken. And they will take people to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Say, this is what the gospel should be. You know, we got it wrong before. <laughs> These things are almost a joke, a bad joke, a sad joke to mislead people in such a way. When you read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4, I remember the first time I read through this, and I thought, oh, maybe we did get it wrong. But when you read it and read it in context, uh, you realize that people are being deceived by that argument. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. In other words, this is the gospel, as some people say, which I preach to you, by which also you are saved. For I delivered to you first, first and foremost, or first of all, that which I received, that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. Some say this is the gospel. The gospel is really about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yet if you go to verse 12, Paul was addressing a very specific issue. People in Corinth had begun to doubt that the resurrection had adly, that had they doubted the resurrection even occurred. They were being misled. It says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? And this is why Paul said, This is first and foremost. This is what I taught you about. It's a fundamental teaching that the resurrection did occur. But as we also read in Acts 28, Paul was preaching about Jesus Christ and he was also preaching about the coming kingdom of God. You know, this argument that uh, the, the gospel was, got Mr. Armstrong got off on the wrong track and was preaching a different gospel is not biblical and it does not agree with the facts of history. It's a wrong argument totally. Let me read you just a little bit from this book, uh, Caesar and the Christ by Will Durant. Will Durant is a Catholic historian. Here's what Durant has to say the gospel was. This is interesting. It says, when John was in prison, Jesus took up uh, the Baptist's work. He took up John the Baptist's work and began to preach the coming kingdom. When John was in prison, Jesus took up the reins and began to preach the coming kingdom of God. And we could just kind of bounce through here a number of different places. 
uh, talks about Christ taught with the simplicity required by his audience with interesting stories and lessons. His starting point was the gospel of John the Baptist, which itself went back to Daniel and Enoch. The kingdom of heaven was at hand, he said. Soon God would put an end to the reign of wickedness on this earth, and the Son of Man would come in the clouds of the sky to judge all humanity, living and dead. The time for repentance was running out. Those who repented, lived justly, loved God, and put their faith in the messenger would inherit the kingdom. This is what Christ was preaching about. Would be raised to power and glory in a world at last freed from all evil suffering and death. It says the central theme of Christ's preaching, the coming judgment and kingdom, was already a century old among the Jews. So here's what a Catholic historian has to say about what the gospel was. It was not about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ exclusively. It was about a coming kingdom of God, which is what we've been preaching for decades. It's what the early church preached, what I talked about. Another item of apostolic Christianity. They focused on end-time prophecy. There was an interest in it then, 2,000 years ago. Christ spoke about it. The apostles wrote about it. And it was something that Jesus Christ did not rebuke them for asking about. And yet some people today say, well, you know, we spend too much time on the bad news. You know, we need to be talking about, about love and about Jesus, and not about the, the end of the world. Matthew 24. <clears throat> now you can't argue with the boss. This is what Jesus Christ answered when he would ask questions. This was his response. Matthew 24, verse 3. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? He had been talking about the destruction of the temple. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? How will we know? Now, this answer was in part to them because they asked the question. But the information is vital to us today because we are living at a period of time when the very things Christ was talking about are coming alive today and dominating the news today. The apostles were concerned about the end of the age. They wanted to know, how will we know? And Jesus began talking. He did not rebuke them for asking the question. He said, don't worry your little minds about it. You know, focus on the big picture, me. He didn't say that. He answered their questions and he gave them information that was really recorded for us. The people that are living at a time when these things would be coming to pass. Jesus answered and said, let no one deceive you. You know, Take heed, listen up, be careful. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, I'm a Christian. Christ is leading us. He says, don't fall for those things. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. You know, every time you look through the paper in the morning or listen to the news in the evening, the problems in Africa, the problems in the Middle East, the problems in Southeast Asia, problems in Central Asia. This is what's dominating the world today are these kinds of problems. Nation will rise against nation. The word here is ethnos. 
One ethnic group will rise against another ethnic group. This is what's happening again all over the world. In times past, it was usually a local occurrence. Today, they carry atomic bombs in, in, in briefcases. We're living in a totally different world today. The consequences are much bigger today, much more serious. There'll be famines. And somebody wrote in just recently, said, why are we talking about Africa? Why are we talking about China? Shouldn't we be focused on Jerusalem? Well, yeah, we'll focus on Jerusalem, but all these things are going to be happening all over the world. And one of the reasons we'll begin to understand we're living at the end of the age is Christ is talking about events that are going to have global impact. Famines are going to affect continent after continent. Disease epidemics are going to sweep across the world. It's interesting, this bird flu epidemic began in, in, in southern China the same place where bubonic plague came from centuries ago. And it has to do with the way they live over there. The lack of sanitation, the closeness of human beings to animals. When you violate biological laws, those laws bite back. And it's interesting, we're facing again a global epidemic that came from the same area of the world, probably fed by some of the same conditions, that wiped out literally, I think, about a third of the population of Europe when the plague came over there in 1300s. These are the things that Jesus was talking about. He said, watch these things. Keep your eyes open. Be aware of what's happening. You know, Christ was the one that said, watch. Mr. Armstrong said the same thing. We're saying the same thing today. But it was Jesus that said these things. Down in verse 42, he says, Watch, therefore, because you do not know the hour your Lord is coming. But before that, he said, When you see the leaves and the buds coming out on trees, you know spring is coming. And by implication, when you see these things on the news, when they're all over the papers, then you better keep your eyes open. Better be ready for the Son of Man is coming, verse 44, at an hour when most people will not expect. We're having a World Cup soccer series over in Europe today. Everybody's running around with their dyed hair and drinking and partying, having a big time over there. Uh, they're fiddling while Rome is burning. You know, they're having golf matches over here, and I think uh, they just recently completed the... Uh, the uh, NBA tournaments and stuff like that. Everybody's all tied up with these things. And yet the world is, is approaching the edge of a precipice, about ready to fall over. And people are just not aware of what's happening. Jesus was the one that said, watch. In Matthew 25, he talks about these ten virgins. Five were wise, five were foolish. But he said they all slumbered. The five wise ones went to sleep. They slumber. Verse 13, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. You don't know the exact time, but you should watch for the signs that come along. Go through Mark, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. Think about seven or eight times Jesus said, watch. Keep your eyes open. 
It was Christ that emphasized these things. This is what apostolic Christianity was all about. Again, I've mentioned I heard a a friend give a sermon some time ago where he was kind of rebuking his congregation for getting uptight about prophecy. He said, you need to just let it alone. It'll work out. Let it alone. He said, I've read through the book, the New Testament. There's not much there. Man, you wonder, what book's he reading? Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it talks about the day of the Lord coming. Watch, Paul says. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 talks about the return of Jesus Christ. talks about this man of sin will be revealed at that time. He's going to deceive hundreds and thousands and millions of people. He said this is going to be happening at the end of the age. 1 Timothy chapter 4, in the latter days, people are going to come along preaching various things. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and 4, Paul says, in the last days, perilous times will come. Things are going to get really difficult. This is apostolic Christianity. It's focused on the end of the age. Peter says, in the last days, chapter 2 and chapter 3, Scoffers will come. There'll be false prophets all over the place. What does Revelation talk about if it's not prophecy? End time prophecy. No prophecy about the end of the age in the New Testament? I've got a bridge in Brooklyn I can sell you cheap. You know, we've got to be careful, brethren, and not be taken in by some of these things. Why are these things in the Bible? so that we don't go to sleep, we don't get caught up in the cares of this world and miss our calling and miss the future that God has ready for us, wants to give us and share with us as potential members of his family. He doesn't want us to lose out. A couple of other things about apostolic Christianity. Apostolic Christians were urged to come out of this world don't get caught up in the cares of this world. It doesn't mean quit your job, move out to the desert and become a hermit or live on one of these you know, pillars uh, up in the air as some people did back in the Middle Ages. Pillar saints, they called them. One guy lived years of his life on a pillar 60 feet up in the air. This is stupidity. Again, people may have been very sincere and that's a shame that they were misled that way. But in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 to 18, Paul is talking there to come out of this world. Leave the world behind. Don't get caught up in the cares of this world. Don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Don't get involved with you know, political campaigns and all these other things. Yes, we do need to support our family. We do need to be lights and examples. We need to function in this world. But our values, our priorities should not be worldly priorities. We need to be focused on bigger things if we want to be in the kingdom of God. Romans 12, Paul talks about their characteristics of Christians. He says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed in the renewing of your mind. 
You think about important things. Focus on what's really important. And not just physical things, not just monetary things, not just things that make you feel good. Those type of things. Apostolic Christians were not encouraged to just kind of go with the flow and just kind of blend in. And when you read the history of the church, some of the eras, they did blend in. Because if they didn't, they lost their lives. They were persecuted. And they, they, they suffered for the compromises that they made. And the Catholic Church was persecuting some of those peoples up in the valleys of uh, northern Italy. It said some of them would sit in a Catholic church on Sunday and then secretly keep the Sabbath. And when you read what happened to those people, there were crusades launched against them. There were persecutions against them. In one case, uh, an army of men came in, butchered a bunch of people, the live people, they tied up, and then they buried in shallow graves, about a foot deep, and drove a plow over top of them. I mean, what these people went through for their beliefs. Why were they persecuted that way? Because of what they believed. Because of what they believed. You know, we've got to come out of this world. We've got to begin thinking about the coming kingdom of God. If you are given an opportunity to reign with Jesus Christ, you're going to have an opportunity to begin to straighten out the problems of this world, to relieve the suffering, to dispel the deception, to point people in a right direction, enabling them to live and enjoy the earth as God intended it to be enjoyed. You know, here in Charlotte, we live in a very beautiful area, a beautiful area of the world. And yet when you travel around the world and see how many people have to live because they don't have any other option. We have been called to be able to change these things one of these days. To literally change the world. Is that what you focus on? Is that what you're preparing for? Is that what you hope to do? If you do, God is going to notice that. And he's going to say, there's one I can use. There's someone that's focusing on the big picture. There's someone I can mold and fashion and prepare to literally change the world. We've got to come out of this world. That's what apostolic Christians have had to do. Another element of apostolic Christianity, we've been called to be lights and examples to this world. Lights and examples to this world. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Let's read a couple of these scriptures and think about them for a minute. Jesus told his disciples, now this is apostolic Christianity from the mouth of the boss. This is what he was telling his disciples. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how can, you, how can we season with it? What's it taste like when you get a mouthful of salt? you know you got something in your mouth. <laughs> it's not bland. It's got a definite taste. You know, if we are salt of the earth, when people are around us, they're going to realize, boy, that guy or that woman's got some real convictions. They're salty. There's taste there. 
You stand for something. You know, other people you're around and they, you talk with them for an hour. Where is he coming from? You know, he agreed with everything I said. I said some wrong things deliberately, and he still agreed with that. <laughs> well, he didn't want to offend me. You know, are you a salty person in a right way? You know, we lived in Massachusetts near the ocean up there, and I was around some salty characters up there. <laughs> I couldn't repeat what they said. I didn't want to tell the stories that they told. They were, they were pretty salty people. But are we salty in a right way? Paul was. When he was talking to Agrippa, he says, I know, you know, that I'm telling the truth. Ah, come on, Paul. Agrippa, I know, you know. Paul wasn't going to let him off the hook. Are we salty in that way? Are we strongly convicted of what we believe? Uh, mentioned down here in verse 14, you are the light of the world. If somebody walks in the back corner, what are you guys doing in here? Now, you don't have to say, well, we're the light of the world. Can't you see that? <laughs> but you know, when you say, you know, we're Christians, we're following the teachings of Jesus Christ, we are trying to hold as close as we can to apostolic Christianity. Would you like to join us? Your light shining. You're concerned. You're showing compassion. You're confident. Jesus said, let your lights shine. He didn't say, let your mouth run. He said, let your light shine. Now, there's a time and a place for giving answers. You know, Peter mentions in 1 Peter 3, verse 15. Let's notice that quickly. <clears throat> and we've got to put these things all together to understand how apostolic Christians uh, function and how we should function. 1 Peter 3, 15. Peter says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. You know, set God apart, follow God, and always be ready to give a defense, to give an answer to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Are we ready to give an answer? Yes, I'm a Christian. I follow the teachings of Jesus Christ, the best way to go. It works. I have no apologies to make. It would benefit you, too. <laughs> Can we answer? Paul was confident. He didn't apologize for his beliefs. He gave a reason why he believed. You know, Peter also mentions, we have not followed cunningly devised fables. We didn't make up this thing about the resurrection. Jesus Christ walked out of the grave. I saw him. My friends saw him. Hundreds of other people saw him. And some of these books coming out today say that you know, the disciples sold the body and Christ was never resurrected. That denies history. Go back and read Josephus. I didn't bring the notes up here. But Josephus, a Jew, writing in the first century, mentions that Christ was crucified and he came out of the grave on the third day. Josephus was a Jew. And he was saying... Christ came out of the grave on the third day. When Mel Gibson did his film on the Passion, I think there was a whole bunch of issues came up, and the Jews were upset. You know, we don't want him saying we killed him. Josephus said, who was a Jew, he said, prominent men amongst us 
put that guy on the cross. Josephus was a Jew. He admitted that Jews killed Christ. The religious leaders in Jerusalem killed him. I didn't see the film The Passion, but if, if Gibson fudged on that, then uh, he was fudging history. You know, the, 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 the truth is there. These things can be proven. We can be confident of what we believe. Paul mentions in 2 Timothy 3, verse 14 to 16. We need to think about these things. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let's go there first. <clears throat> in fact, that's what we want. Chapter 2, verse 15. Start in verse 14. It's amazing how off track some people can get today. They can come up with a, an idea. And Mr. David John Hill years ago talked about idea babies. Idea babies that we conceive and then we nurse and nurture. And then we bring them forth and <laughs> scare everybody. <laughs> because they're weird. And I think some people today very sincere, but they come up with these crazy ideas. Notice what Paul is saying to apostolic Christians. Remind them of these things. Paul is writing a pastoral letter to Timothy. He says, here's how you pastor a congregation. Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive, not to argue over words to no profit. Don't argue over words to no profit, things that we don't have the answers for, that we just have to speculate about. To the ruin of the hearers. People get involved with those things and it creates a lot of disturbance and so on. It says, be diligent or study to present yourselves approved unto God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, correctly understanding the scriptures, putting it all together so that it makes sense. It's encouraging, you know, talking to new people coming in contact with us. You know, you guys put it all together. It makes sense. You know, I've listened to the Christmas address and the Easter address of the Pope for the last four or five years because I was in Europe. These guys are clueless. They don't understand what's happening in the world. They don't understand the way to peace. You know, sitting around and lighting a bunch of candles before an idol is not going to bring peace to the world. You can light thousands of candles. It's not going to bring peace to the world. They don't know the way to peace. And yet they're up there pontificating. They haven't got a clue how to bring peace. They have no idea where prophecy is going. They don't understand what's happening in the world. They don't understand the prophetic significance of what's happening in the world. They don't know. And yet they're proposing to lead billions of people. They don't understand. Paul says, be diligent to present yourselves approved unto God, correctly understanding, rightly dividing the word of truth. We need to understand that so we can explain the truth, that Christ kept the Sabbath, the apostles kept the Sabbath, they kept the holy days, they did these things for reasons. They picture the plan and purpose of God. Verse 16, but shun, avoid profane and vain babblings. Don't come up with a whole bunch of doctrinal papers. You know, we're babbling about things. If you have an idea, discuss it with your minister. Let him discuss it then with a the regional pastor. 
But, you know, we guard these idea babies. I've been thinking about this. God has revealed this to me. And I just pray the church will come to understand what God has revealed to me. Wrong way to go. That's not how God puts doctrines in his church. He didn't do it then. He's not doing it now. That's how harebrained ideas are hatched in many cases. But shun, avoid profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. And then Paul mentioned names and places. So-and-so and so-and-so. If we do that today, people, oh, you can't do that. Paul did. Read First and Second Timothy. He mentions about a half a dozen to eight or more names of people. And he said they're off base. They're in left field. They're being influenced by a wrong spirit. They're going off in a wrong direction. He didn't pull any punches either. Final thing about apostolic Christianity. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. This is the very beginning of Christ's ministry. And if we want to be apostolic Christians, this is where we need to go. And this is what we need to think about. You probably know where I'm going already if you... Know the scriptures of Matthew chapter 7. It says, judge not that you be not judged. Don't be condemning people. Apostolic Christians don't sit around judging other people. They just don't do that. It's a waste of time. It's not our prerogative. Why is he doing what he's doing? When's the minister going to do something about him? It's not our job to be judging other people. God will take care of those things. God will take care of those things. Let's read down through here. For what judgment you judge, you will be judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the same measure you use, it will be measured unto you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? His hair is too long. He's got gum behind his ear. I see it. You know, I was citing those dresses and they're too low, they're too short. <laughs> Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you don't consider the plank in your eye, which is a judgmental attitude? You know, God will take care of these things. Yes, we need to have standards, and we need to mention them from time to time, and we need to give people time to make adjustments. Had another visit with a gentleman, another part of the world. Uh, we had an excellent talk for two or three hours. He'd been trying to get to us for some time, and various things happened. Uh, we talked about it. I said, look, you want to come to church? And I just made the comment. I said, you know, we, we, we generally encourage fellas to wear coats and ties and ladies to wear dresses to church. And it left it at that. He showed up in blue jeans, an old shirt. But he was welcomed. Boy, it's good to see you. Where are you coming from? What's your background? Two weeks later, I think he walked in in a coat and tie. Nobody said a thing. Nobody said a thing. He was perceptive. He picked up on things. He was there to learn the truth. And as he learned it, he made adjustments. And we didn't have to stand there with a whistle and a club, you know, Apostolic Christians don't judge each other. They don't sit around judging other people. They get busy 
and make sure that their eyes are clear and their lives are straightened out. Let's talk about just a couple of other things. And I think these are things we need to think about. You know, Dr. Meredith has stressed our mission is really to restore apostolic Christianity. And we can get excited about these things, restoring apostolic Christianity. But we need to think a little bit and we need to understand the impact that apostolic Christianity had on the ancient world and the reaction of the ancient world to apostolic Christianity. We need to think about some of these things. Now, Jesus mentioned in Mark 16, verses 15 through 20, he says, you go into all the world and preach the gospel to everyone. That's your mission. You preach an apostolic message to everyone. And he says, these signs will follow. You pick up snakes and you're not going to be hurt by those things. Healings will happen. Those are exciting. But go back and read John 15, 16, and 17. And notice what Jesus said to his disciples the night before he was crucified. He said, the world is going to hate you. They will persecute you. They will kick you out of the synagogues. And they will kill you. And they will think they're doing God a favor. This is what happened to some apostolic Christians. They were preaching a message the world did not like. They would not serve in the Roman army. They would not light incense to the emperor. Apparently many Romans were not overly religious, but they had certain rituals that they wanted people to go through. And those rituals kind of tied everybody together. But it became very obvious these people don't go along with that. They're not compromising. They're not fitting in. And they were persecuted because of their beliefs. Jesus Christ and the apostles got on the wrong side of the Pharisees. Christ was dragged before the Sanhedrin. He was beaten. He was crucified because he healed on the Sabbath. He picked grain on the Sabbath. He violated the principles that the, the Pharisees wanted people to live by. He walked into the temple and tipped over the tables of the money changers. He disrupted the way they did things. And they plotted to kill him. And they did. That's what happened to the leader of apostolic Christianity. John the Baptist lost his head when he told Herod, you are in an adulterous relationship. It embarrassed Herod. It ticked off the woman he was with. <laughs> and she got John's head. They didn't like the truth. They didn't like hearing the truth. And there was a cost. A number of the apostles were beaten, thrown in jail, because they were preaching that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. He was the one that was prophesied to come. The Jews didn't like that. You can go through a number of scriptures in the New Testament. In Acts 17, verses 1 through 6, it mentions there, the apostles' teaching turned the world 
upside down. It turned the world upside down. The Romans believed the Caesars were divine. And when Paul came along and said, God is divine, Christ is divine, human beings are human beings, didn't go over very well. Whenever Paul came to Ephesus, Acts chapter 19, I think it is. Ephesus was the seat of Diana worship. They made little silver figurines of a woman, many-breasted woman. A lot of people made a lot of money selling those statues. Paul spent some time in Ephesus, and he probably talked about idolatry. These things were evil and shouldn't be done. What was the reaction? Great is the God of Ephesians, Diana. He disrupted their economy with his preaching. The Catholics basically took it over. Uh, Ephesus built a big cathedral and said Mary died there. And they started selling figurines again (laughs) under a different name. We were in Rome here not too long ago. You walk around uh, uh, St. Peter's over there, and all the shops have these little statues. St. Mary's in a half shell is what they called them up in Boston. (laughs) This with a statue of a woman with a a seashell behind her. Uh, Crosses and so on. A big business over there. You know, Dr. Meredith would have stood up there in St. Peter's and held up this banner, Living Church of God. Because all these other people were waving their banners where they were from. And if you said, you know, this is all idolatry over here, what would have happened? It would have been mobbed, dragged away by the cops. That's what happened to Paul. He challenged what the people were doing in Ephesus with their idol worships and this traffic in, in these images. You know, Christians disrupted the economy. They wouldn't serve in the, the army. Uh, it was very disruptive. And they were persecuted. You know, Diocletian launched a persecution that lasted for about 10 years. Confiscated property, chased people out of towns, burned Bibles, killed people, burned people at the stake. And then Roman popes have done the same thing. One of the reasons the Roman popes went after the Waldensians in northern Italy, the Albigensians in southern France. These people were preaching that worshiping images was wrong, that celibacy was not biblical, that you don't pray for dead people, all these things. And they were persecuted. Crusades were launched against these people because of what they believed. Do you want to be an apostolic Christian? It's going to be a challenge. It's not going to be easy. You know, if on television we come out very clearly and say that the Roman Catholic Church is the harlot of the book of Revelation, that's not going to fly very well. And if we tell people this ecumenical movement of trying to get everybody together and all different denominations together, this is not coming from God. This is not God's Spirit driving this. What is happening is people are going back to a pagan religious mother in Rome. 
It's not going to fly. That's going to rattle cages. But this is the message we're going to have to deliver. Read about the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. When did God send the prophets to Israel and to Judah? In many cases, they came when those, those nations were at the height of their power, maybe 10, 20 years before they began to get down to tubes. Their messages were not welcome. Somebody's walking up and down the streets of Charlotte. This city's going to get down to tubes. How long would they last doing that? Be dragged off by the cops. You're disrupting our peaceful environment here. But this is going to happen. Are we ready for these things? The impact of apostolic Christianity on the world literally turned that world upside down. The apostles were able to do miracles nobody else could duplicate. People realize these guys are different. Something's happening we don't understand. It had an incredible impact on the ancient world. But there was also a reaction against apostolic Christianity. We are part of a church that has a message to deliver. And there will be consequences for that. But there also will be incredible rewards for delivering that message. And the question is, do you want to share in the rewards? Go to Matthew chapter 17, 11 quickly. <clears throat> Notice again what our mission is. Why have we been called? What do we have to do? What are the rewards going to be for doing the job? <clears throat> Matthew chapter 17, verse 11. The disciples had asked about the Elijah. Talked about in Malachi chapter 4. Verse 10, it says, The disciples asked him, Christ, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come? Jesus answered and said to them, Elijah truly is coming. Now, he identifies uh, John the Baptist with the Elijah, but uh, John the Baptist was already there. And Jesus is saying, truly Elijah is coming and will restore all things. John the Baptist didn't restore all things at that time. This is a prophecy for what we will be doing today, restoring all things, recapturing true values. And Mr. Armstrong had 18 truths that he felt that he restored to the church. Knowledge the church has lost over the centuries. We have been called to be part of a church that has been involved in restoring true values. We're here because we believe those things. They're the very same things that Jesus Christ and the apostles were teaching as part of apostolic Christianity. And it's exciting to see people coming in contact with the church today saying, I've read that stuff in the book and you guys are actually doing it. You know, I was talking with some people in, in western Kenya a couple of years ago. And they made the statement, our preacher doesn't preach what's actually in the Bible. They could read what was in the book and they realized their preacher wasn't preaching it. But we're part of a church that is preaching what is in the book. And that's exciting. But part of our mission is to restore, recapture true values, restore an understanding of the truth, to preach the gospel of the coming kingdom of God to the world. 
Matthew 24, verse 14, it says, This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness, and then the end will come. What church were you part of when you first heard the gospel of the kingdom of God? Wasn't the Presbyterian church, because I was there. <laughs> Wasn't the Baptist church. Wasn't the Catholic church. You heard that message as part of the church of God. Preaching about the coming kingdom of God, the reign of the saints on this earth. Notice what Jesus told his own disciples. You know, they didn't follow him for no reason. They followed him because of various things. They knew what their future was. They knew what their opportunities were, and they weren't going to let it get away from them. Verse 28 of Matthew chapter 19. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, in the resurrection, in the coming kingdom of God, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me, you who are my disciples, disciples follow their teacher. They follow the teachings of Jesus Christ. He said, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. If we can see it in our mind's eye, we have been called to reign with Jesus Christ on this earth. To begin to change the conditions that exist in this world all around the globe. This is what we've been called to do. To learn the meaning of the holy days. They picture the plan and purpose of God. To understand Bible prophecy. What is happening. Where things are going. And what the outcome is going to be. We can go back and read Revelation 5.10. Where it talks about the saints will reign on this earth. As kings. As priests. As civil and religious leaders. Building cities, restructuring educational programs, rebuilding the family, restoring true moral values. This is what we've been called to do. First, to learn in church how to do these things, to practice these things in our family, to be prepared to reign with Jesus Christ. It's not going to be easy. You know, driving up through the Cumberland Gap last week and just reading about and visualizing what the early settlers went through in settling this country. Yes, there were wrong things done. Yes, there were people killed and hurt. But building a nation resulted from sweat and blood and toil. Building the kingdom of God is not going to be an easy thing. We're going to have to endure what's coming. Our message is not going to be appreciated. It's not going to be liked. But if we keep our mind focused on the big picture, we get through the trials, get through the tribulations, we do the job that we've been given to do, there's going to be a reward. Let's go to Revelation chapter 3. You might want to go home and just read through this chapter, chapter 2 and 3. And notice the reward 
It's broken down and little bits and pieces are mentioned for each one of the church areas or church eras. But talking about the Philadelphia church, verse 8, I know your works. I've set before you an open door. And we've got doors open to us today that even the apostles didn't have. That no one can shut. For you have a little strength, and that is certainly the church today. But you've kept my word. You've not denied my name. You've not denied the commission that I've given you. I will indeed make those of the synagogue of Satan, and that's how God views the churches of this world, who say they are Jews or say they are Christians and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet. They will acknowledge that you have been and are the church of God. That God has been working through you and with you because you have kept my command to persevere. You realize the work did not come to an end when Mr. Armstrong died. You persevered. You kept on doing the work. I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which will come upon the whole world. It's talking about the tribulation. He said, you're not going to have to go through that because of what you've done. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast that which you have, that nobody takes your crown. It was interesting when I was relieved of my responsibilities in Big Sandy. So I walked out of the room. I punched this one guy in his ribs. <laughs> I'm just thinking to myself, you can't have my crown. You're not going to get it. <laughs> I'm going to keep it. But Jesus said, Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one takes your crown. He who overcomes, and we're all going to have to overcome things, I will make him or her a pillar in the temple of my God. You're going to be there holding up the superstructure that's going to be built on top of you. Brethren, we have got an incredible calling. We have been called to become apostolic Christians, to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, to follow in the footsteps of Paul and Peter and James and John and others down through the centuries. We should have a clear idea of what our reward is to reign with Jesus Christ and to help change the world. That's what apostolic Christianity is all about. Let's not lose our crown. Let's not lose our focus. Let's stay focused on those things.